evening. It is Wednesday, January 27, 2010, in the green room of the Veterans Building here in San Francisco. The Points of View programs, along with the Meet the Artist interviews, other educational programming, are produced by our San Francisco Ballet Center for Dance Education, which is directed by Charles Chip McNeil. And and managed by our adult education coordinator, Cecilia Beam. And I'd like to thank Cecilia for the effort she's put in to date and the effort she will put in over the next three months. So thank you, Cecilia. So also, welcome to this first Point of View program of the season. Our... um, Points of View programming and Meet the Artist interviews, as many of you know, are recorded for future podcasting. I encourage you to go to San Francisco Ballet's website, sfballet.org, to find a program that you might have missed, to review one that you might have enjoyed. Those of you um, who have been here for a while will remember that you've heard that announcement over and over. Um, We are always anticipating that we'll have new listeners and new audience members, and we are very warmly greeting those of you who are returning friends, familiar faces, those who may be listening to a future podcast, And those of you who are new to our programming, and for those of you, I hope you will find these points of view programs to be informative and interesting and entertaining, and perhaps provide you with a look behind the scenes from the point of view of someone who is inside the story. Tonight, uh, first of all, I want to thank all of you for coming Uh, We are up against the State of the Union message, and you will have either set your TiVo or you'll catch the highlights later. So thank you so much for being here with us. Uh, Before we launch into a quick overview of the season and the highlights and what you have to look forward to, I do want to um, point out a couple of the highlights of our Points of View program. Um, Program 3 which um, the Point of View program is February 17th, uh, will feature information about the ballet Petrushka. And our guest will be Isabel Fokin, who is the granddaughter of the choreographer Michael Fokin. That should be an exceptionally interesting program. Look forward to seeing you at that. And then another one that should be a highlight, uh, down the way on April 21st, it's our program number six, we will, as some of you know, not be here. We will be downstairs in the Herbst Theater, and that program, um, the the principal guest on that program will be artistic director Helgi Thomason, and we'll be doing a reflection of his 25 years, um, featuring a lot of the works that he brought in, choreographers he brought in, works that he premiered. It should be um, interesting and, I hope, fun to look back. I do want to call your attention to the programs just coming up. Everyone is going to Swan Lake, but it would also be interesting for you to catch the next couple of programs. We have a little bit of information and some pictures, so perhaps 
we can move on to what's ahead. As you know, the company will look just a little bit different when you go to see them this year. Um, one of our own for a very long time, dancer Francis Chung, has risen through the ranks and just this fall was promoted to the role of principal dancer. So when you see her, you'll be able to appreciate what's gone before and the work that she's achieved. Lovely, lovely dancer. We have a new dancer. This is Vitor Luis. Um, he comes to us from around the world, but his origin is Brazil. We have a number of new corps de ballet members. Many of them rose up through the San Francisco Ballet School and were part of our trainee program. Um, not, I'm sorry I don't have each one of those identified, but these are Madison Kiesler, Christina Lind, Stephen Morse, Rebecca Rhodes. Watch for them in the core pieces this year. And then apprentices, Kimberly Braylock, Miles Thatcher, and Sylvie Volosov. A couple of interesting appointments happened this year. Some of you may recall that for a very long time, uh, Ashley Weeder was assistant to artistic director Helgi Thomason. Helgi, uh, Ashley um, ran off to become the artistic director of the Joffrey Ballet and <clears throat> left Helgi without an assistant. And after due consideration, he has appointed not one but two assistants, our good friend Ricardo Bustamante, who continues as a ballet master, as a principal character dancer, and assistant to the artistic director. And some of you, if you reach back, might remember Bruce Sansom. Bruce was a guest artist with San Francisco Ballet in 1992. He, um, I remember him uh, performing The Sleeping Beauty and any number of other roles during that season. He came back a few years later as an intern in um, administration, and he worked half of the time with the um, executive side of the organization and half of his time with the um, artistic administration. And then he went back to his home in England and has uh, worked in teaching and administration and um, coaching and direction and was very eager to accept Helgi's invitation to come here as his assistant and ballet master. I'm hopeful that we will be able to introduce you in person to Bruce before the end of the season. <clears throat> well, the season opens, as you know, with Swan Lake, which is a reprise of last year's world premiere, choreographed by Helgi Thomason after the Ivanov and Petipa tradition, designed by Jonathan Fensom to the immortal Tchaikovsky score. A few of the images. I'm guessing many of you will be attending this evening's performance, and we'll be sure that you have time to get there. From the um, third act, the um, ballroom scene, Sarah Van Patten as Odile. Uh, those of you who see tonight's performance will see her. Anita Pachotti as the Queen Mother. 
one of the variations, the international dances. A stunning picture of this incredibly graphic set. I know you'll find it a feast for the eyes as well as the ears. Program two, which opens in a couple of weeks, has um, three repertory items. Company B is a an encore, or is a revival for our company, choreographed by Paul Taylor, to the wonderful song sung by the Andrews Sisters. And as you can see, Paul Taylor took us back to the era of the 30s and 40s. Some of you might have seen Gennady Nedgevin um, at the gala, if you were lucky to, to attend the gala, in this role, the boogie-woogie bugle boy. <clears throat> Also on that program will be a revival that we have not seen since Helgi Thomason's first two seasons here, Opus 19, The Dreamer, choreographed by Jerome Robbins to the um, Prokofiev Violin Concerto, number one in D major, choreographed, as I said, by Jerome Robbins. Also on that program, we have the first of our world premieres for this season, Christopher Wielden returns to us. Um, he has created any number of pieces for the company. The company does, in addition, pieces that he um, had previously created and brought here. Um, we're very excited to um, be seeing, just in another couple of weeks, the ballet Ghosts to music by C.F. Winger, which is a commissioned score for Christopher's ballet. <clears throat> Program three... Many of you who are old friends uh, will know that the Balanchine evening is one of my favorites, and so I will recommend it highly. Um, three of Balanchine's most beloved and um, most characteristic works, the Stravinsky Violin Concerto, that has to be one of the best da dance pictures of all time, Theme and Variations, which is his tribute to the Imperial Russian era. The dancers in the women in tutus, the style, extremely traditionally classical. But as we know, of course, with Balanchine's neoclassic twist, And then the beautiful Serenade, which we haven't seen here in a few years, to the Tchaikovsky Serenade for Strings. And we unearthed an archival photograph. Some of you might actually remember seeing this, which was probably over 20 years ago. Um, Anita Pachotti, who is now one of our principal character dancers, and Tom Rood. Moving on to program number four, this will be an exciting program. As I mentioned, um, for, the preview, or for the points of view lecture, my guest will be Isabel Fokine, but we'll also be seeing um, a return of last year's premiere, Diving into the Lilacs, created by 
Yuri Posakov to this lovely sinfonietta by Boris Tchaikovsky, No Relation. And those who saw it last year will remember how lovely and romantic it was and the incredible lilac set. And that program includes In the Middle, Somewhat Elevated, created by um, William Forsyth and to the electronic score of Tom Villam, his um, frequent collaborator. And the featured work on that particular program, Fokin's Petrushka. Some of you may be aware that a year, uh, year ago, the Diaghilev Ballet Russe celebrated its 100-year anniversary. And San Francisco Ballet is producing its tribute this season. Petrushka premiered in 1911. The groundbreaking music of Stravinsky and the um, groundbreaking concept of Serge Diaghilev, <clears throat> choreographer Fokin, music Stravinsky, and the artist Benoit. The premiere was danced by Nijinsky with Karsavina as the ballerina doll and the old ballet master Enrico Cicchetti as the uh, charlatan. This is bound to be a high point of the season. Uh, program five is The Little Mermaid. The Little Mermaid is <clears throat> a full-length piece. It was cre choreographed in 2005 by John Neumeyer for the Royal Danish Ballet to a commission score by Lara Auerbach. Uh, we have tried to emphasize this is a mature adaptation of the original uh, Anderson folk, uh, fairy tale. This is very, very much not intended for young children. I hope that you will all hold that very carefully when you are discussing this and recommending it to friends. It's a stunning design, stunning effects, very unusual movement, and... Um, I, I know you're going to want to be lining up for that one. On program six, we have a revival we haven't seen in a very long time, Helgi Thomason's Hafner Symphony, which he created in 1991 during a Mozart festival. It was a tribute to the um, Habsburg court, and you can see a little bit of that in the costuming. The work was created for Elizabeth Lascavio. Some of you may remember Elizabeth. Here she is, pictured with a former dancer, Paul Gibson. And then on that program, we have um, our second world premiere, which is entitled Underskin. The choreographer is Renato Zanella, an Italian choreographer who has worked primarily in Europe. That one will be most interesting. His score is the um, Verklärte Night, the Transfigured Night by Arnold Schoenberg. And then on that program we have a 
encore of one of last year's premieres, Russian Season by Alexei Radmansky. Some of you remember how much we enjoyed that last year. Program seven, we see a revival of Christopher Wielden's Rush to the score by uh, Martineau. Those of you who did see the gala remember seeing a pas de deux from Rush, danced by Damien and uh, Katita. All the things we expect from Christopher Wielden. And then our last world premiere, which is um, by Yuri Posakov, our resident choreographer. He has chosen the music of Prokofiev, um, the symphony number one. It's um, known as the classical symphony, and we hear that this will be Yuri doing a classical piece. And I'm going to bet that there will be twists in it. And here's Yuri in rehearsal for those of us who've forgotten what he looked like when he was on stage. This season concludes with the third full-length ballet. Oh, I'm sorry, we forgot about one more piece on Program 7, one of my personal favorites, the concert, which we revived last year, choreography by Robbins, music of Chopin, the concert or the perils of everybody. And it's a favorite. the iconic photo of the ballerina. <clears throat> and now we talk about Romeo and Juliet, which will conclude the season. This was Helgi Thomason's production. He premiered it in 1994 to the most familiar romantic score by Prokofiev. We have three pieces by Prokofiev this season. I think that's interesting. And the stunning, stunning sets and costumes by Jens Jakob Warsaw. And that brings us to the end of a peek at what's coming down the season. At this time, I'm going to introduce my guest for this evening, um, art historian, educator, member of our board since 1990. Sonny has been watching the San Francisco Ballet since 1976 and is in a unique position to offer observations about the evolution of the company, through the Thomason years, and to offer her comments about the season to come. So, Sunny, will you join me? And please welcome Sunny Evers. And we do a little quick sound, sound check. Welcome, Sunny. Thank you for inviting me. <laughs> I'm happy to be here. Oh, but we need that off. Yeah. <laughs> I'm going to be blinded. It will power down in okay. three, two, one. I'll look this way. One. <laughs> um, my hope as we uh, sort of talk through the next few minutes is um, to... 
first of all, find out a little bit more about San Francisco Ballet from the point of view of someone who's not on the stage and someone who's been a supporter and an audience member for a very long time. Well, thank and God I'm not on the stage. I think I would be a Fantasia elephant in a tutu. Um, I ha- have, as, as Mary said, I've been watching San Francisco Ballet since I moved to California in 1976. And it was a hard move because I grew up in the East and I grew up with the ballet world of New York. I was only 22 when I moved. I got married. And I thought, uh-oh, how am I going to survive in San Francisco without New York City Ballet, without ABT, without the Royal Canadian coming to the Metropolitan? Uh, oh, I'm a, I'm a culture snob, and I'm, how am I going to do? So then I got out here. and I want to make sure everybody, can everyone can hear, hear Closer? Maybe, yeah, a little closer. And there okay. was San Francisco Ballet. So I said, all right, we have to, I have to check it out. I was living in, in Menlo Park because my husband was attending Stanford and I was att- getting my PhD at Berkeley. And to my great delight, San Francisco Ballet was wonderful. But it was a young company then, and it was, well, it's the oldest company, but it felt like a young company. And it was still a regional company. So I would have to fly back to New York to see to see my favorites. Um, I guess Mary asked me when we were talking before um, this evening, how did I discover ballet? Well, I was pretty lucky. I was 12. A friend's parents took me to see Swan Lake with, uh, with Rudolf Nureyev and Margot Fontaine. Well, that did it. I became addicted to Tchaikovsky. I was, you know, dancing around my house at 12, listening to that music, crying. And my family was not in love with the ballet. And so I then went off to boarding school and college and would make my pilgrimages to New York to see Nureyev whenever he came, then Balanchine, I mean, then Baryshnikov, and it was a treat. I mean, it really was something that's, that's transformed my life and my career as, as an art historian. So, more? Right. I keep well, going forever. <laughs> we'll intersperse it. Um, I actually wanted to back up a couple steps and say, you know, what is your day job? My so day job. So these folks know what does a trustee of the ballet do when you're not trusting the ballet? When I'm not... Um, Working for the ballet, I teach um, at Convent of the Sacred Heart. I teach AP Art History. I teach Italian Renaissance culture, and I teach women's studies. And then in addition, I, I frequently fill in and teach Renaissance art to, at Stanford or Berkeley. So my life is pretty thoroughly immersed in the arts. My children would say I'm a culture vulture. Uh, but ballet is something that is so visceral and physical and beautiful to watch. It sometimes, for me, brings a painting to life, or it allows me to somewhat disconnect the intellectual stuff that I'm dealing with when I'm um, doing research on Italian Renaissance painting, and just sit back and let the music wash over me and let the movement just blow my mind. And it's just something that is transcendent for me. Um, it brings all the, the visuals, all the senses um, to life. I'm curious to know what led you from being such a passionate audience member to being an active volunteer um, 
member of the, the running of the company? Well, perhaps it's my Renaissance training. In, in Renaissance humanism, it was believed that, modeled on ancient Rome, it was our their civic duty to participate in the culture or the governance of their city. So somehow I absorbed that, and since I love ballet, I'm not, it's not okay just to sit in the audience. I mean, it's okay, but if I have the ability to help and support, then I thought, what could be better? Not only then, I find I can go to um, rehearsals and I can know a little bit of the inside scoop as well. So it's been a great pleasure for me for 20 years to be doing everything I can to help the governments and help Helgi's vision appear on the stage for the audience. It's that that time of year. You've had um, a number of assignments on the, the, uh, the board, but the one that jumps off the page at me is the fact that you are the chair of the school committee. So I would kind of like to parse a couple of things. One is, um, I think most people are fairly familiar with how boards of institutions work, but maybe just a thumbnail crash course in how does a board work and what do the committees do and then let's jump into what does the school committee do and let's talk about just for a minute or two the school. So I've been on the executive committee, I've been chair of the development committee and I have most frequently been chair of the school committee. The bottom line of the development committee is you have to feel comfortable asking for money and because I love this company and because I have such enormous respect for Helgi and the dancers, it's very easy for me to pick up the phone and ask people to support something that I love so much and that I also support. So that's actually easy. Um, I also don't mind making cold calls and going to corporations to spread the word, as it were. The school committee is something that um, I particularly enjoy um, being involved with because of my interest in education. Um, My daughter uh, attended San Francisco Ballet School and went from there to the National Ballet School for two years and then was injured and is no longer involved in dance. Um, And that was a treat because daughters aren't supposed to do what their mothers love. I mean, everybody thought I influenced her. No, she discovered it on her own, and I had great pleasure watching her um, benefit from ballet training, which obviously our school is a professional school and trains and, and educates these wonderful young dancers. And I'm just, as an aside, the star of Swan Lake, of this Swan Lake for me, is the core. And last year, 15 ballet school students were in that core. And if you saw it last year, that core was perfect. And so I'm assuming and hoping that this year it will be just as perfect as it was last year. I've never seen a core like that. I don't know about you, but I was just mesmerized. I mean, I loved the whole pr- production, but those, those swans were amazing. And that's, that's what our school is turning out. And I've had the privilege now twice to work very closely with the associate director of the school, Lola de Avila. And this is a fun story. When she first came to San Francisco from Spain, um, she came as um, guest faculty member. And Helgi had spotted her mother and her mother's school as an extraordinary school in Spain. 
And she comes, came to San Francisco. She didn't speak much English. And Helgi told her, call up Sunny. She's the one you'll love. You'll get to know her, and she'll help you. I don't speak Spanish. So Lola arrived, came to my house, and we're sitting in the living room. She doesn't speak much English. I speak zero Spanish. And this is about soul speaking to each other. We understood each other, even though we didn't speak each other's language. I, don't, I can't explain it. It's just one of those things that happen. And that was almost 20 years, maybe 16 years ago, something like that. We've become incredibly close friends. And in fact, when she retired from being associate director the first time, because she needed to return to Spain because her mother is 90 and, and really Lola felt she had to be there, I went into deep mourning, and I disassociated myself from the school committee for that period of time because I felt so strongly, I felt I had such admiration for Lola, I felt that I might not be the right person to be involved with the school committee when the new person, Gloria Gavran, came in. So I backed away. Also, my daughter was in the higher levels, and I thought, better get her ba- better back away. But then... When Gloria resigned and Helgi persuaded Lola to come back, I watched the school just soar again. And this has been an amazing year for San Francisco Ballet School. Right now, Lola de Avila is um, one of the judges at the Prix de Lausanne and one of the trainees, I think his name is Alessandro, he is Spanish, is an extraordinary young dancer, and he is sure to win one of the top awards. I think he's performing the Sleeping Beauty Pas de Deux and a Pas de Deux from Chris Wielden's Continuum. And in November, the trainee program and Lola went to the 50th anniversary of the National Ballet of Canada. They had a huge celebration, a choreographic workshop, 10 days. And San Francisco Ballet was the only American ballet school invited to participate, which tells us a lot about not only our company, which we know, but maybe you don't know how stellar San Francisco Ballet School is, and it's extraordinary. And those trainees, which are, I think there are six, seven, 18 now students who are in that transitional point between level eight, the most advanced level of the ballet school, and their professional career. They're getting one or two extra years, which gives them more performance opportunity and more kind of hands-on, close training. And it, they're extraordinary. And they, go, they either come into our company or they go to companies throughout the world. Yes, some of our um, new apprentices and actually core people came up through the trainee Mm -hmm. program. There's a little um, note, if you'll look in your uh, uh, program booklet, at the cast, um, the the company roster is what I'm trying to say. Um, There's a little check mark by all of the dancers in the company who had some or more than some of their training at uh, our school. And it's it's just every year there are more checks Mm -hmm. And it, it's beginning to have the feel of some of the larger European companies that um, almost exclusively train their own dancers. So that's, that's pretty exciting. But what's, one thing that's different, I think, about our school and our company um, is in comparison to European companies and schools, 
we don't have a, a, a San Francisco ballet type. We don't have a San Francisco ballet look like the Paris Opera Ballet has a look as a body type and a style. We, as, I mean, maybe it's because we're Californian, or maybe it's because Helgi looks all over the world for his dancers and brings in new choreography all the time. But each one of these dancers has their own identity, which then miraculously works together to, and comes together on stage for this lively, youthful, exuberant California, perhaps, um, company. Wouldn't you agree? Oh, yeah. And that, that starts in the school. That, that the, the, each, the, the students are brilliantly trained but allowed to have their kind of own personality as well. Well, let's reflect now on these 25 years. Um, you were certainly in the audience even though you weren't connected by the board for these 25 years. Um, I think when we were chatting the other day, I said, what has kept your passion for the ballet about the Helgi years? Well, I remember being really excited with Helgi's arrival on the scene because having been passionate about New York City Ballet, I actually also saw Helgi perform as a dancer. Now, it, it was an unknown quantity. Helgi was a brilliant, classical, refined, graceful dancer. Does that translate into being a brilliant artistic director? It was a big, you know, I don't know. And very, very quickly, um, I, I saw the company kind of stepping up and, and improving and refining technique. So Helgi arrived, and very quickly he set about transforming San Francisco Ballet from what really was more of a, a very good regional company into what it is now described, and I think is absolutely accurate, a world-class company. I mean, San Francisco Ballet can compete with any company in the world and hold its own. And that, I think, has a lot to do with Helgi's classical vision, Helgi's innovative creativity, his company class requiring every dancer to attend company class, and the biggest thing he did when he first arrived was requiring the women to wear point shoes in their company class. So just raising the bar, and it's, he started immediately, and it's, from my perspective, it just keeps getting better. And how can it just keep getting better? I think the art form and the athleticism in general is always evolving, but this company just keeps it, looking for new ways and innovations, bringing in new choreographers, and we have to just you know, point to one person. Thank you, Helgi. He's just done a remarkable job. You touched on bringing in choreographers. That seems to be something that most people identify as one of the outstanding uh, characteristics of San Francisco Ballet anywhere for any reason. Bruce Sansom was mentioning that the other night. Um, he said that's what brings him back, is knowing that there will be such a variety of repertoire. Um, some of the things we remember from all these years back. Uh-oh. Now we're going to get senior moments. Yeah. Um, what do I remember from years back? Thank well, you. I remember the UN Festival. You asked right, me the about UN that. that was unbelievable. Nobody, no company has ever done that. It was three pro... It was, 
15 new ballets, I think, mm -hmm. Um, mm -hmm. from choreograph from resident choreographers, but choreographers from all, all over the world. That was a huge endeavor. Now that's when Helgi goes to the board. He presents his dream. We gasp and th worry, uh-oh, how are we going to finance this? And that's really the partnership that exists between Helgi and the board. Each one of us wants nothing more than to f fulfill his dream. But he's also an incredibly wise and disciplined, I guess, businessman as well. He understands if w uh, the board will say to him, we can't do it all. Now, what we need to choose amongst that menu. And what Helgi has always come back to is the need for new choreography by young um, choreographers from all over the world and the need for touring. And touring has been, uh, was a huge innovation. I mean, that's what one of Helgi's real commitments. And that's transformed the international reputation of San Francisco Ballet because now not only do the dancers have the opportunity to go travel around the world and experience other um, dance forms and other um, dance venues, but now the world also has the opportunity to see the treasure of San Francisco. Um. There, back in the olden days, companies would tour to make money. Um, those days are long gone. Um, how does a company afford? What are some of the things that cost so much money? Just list them off. And how does a company afford a tour? We raise money. Um, in fact, I think until this year, um, touring was off budget, meaning we have an annual operating budget I'm always bad with numbers. I think it's 30 million, or it might be a little bit more than 30 million now, uh, half of which is raised through um, productions, so through ticket sales. The other half is raised by the board. And that's, that's a lot of money to raise every year. There are a lot of calls and we, ha we have to make, and there are, but there are a lot of very, very supportive board members who are always there. Um, behind the scenes and supporting the company. So off of, outside of that budget um, is touring, or has been touring. And so that means Helgi says, in 2013, I want to go to, to New York. It's time, we need, I, the dancers need to be seen, the company needs to be seen, whatever. A, a trip to New York, I think, I'm trying to remember, oh, it's several million dollars to go to, to New York, which means seven, several million dollars to be raised. And that typically comes from businesses who have a presence in New York and San Francisco and very, very loyal, very generous uh, supporters of the company. And there are two different ways of touring. You can be a self-presenter, which we are, I think, in New York, which means all of that money has to come out of our pocket. Or then there are, if we go to Orange County, we're presented by the Performing Arts of Orange County, and then they cover the expenses um, um, through ticket sales. So there are two ways of doing it, um, but usually it's, it's a huge requirement on the you know, rallying of the board in support of the company and other people as well. Have you actually traveled with the company when they've toured? 
Yes, it's unfortunately that I, I have a rather busy uh, full-time job, so I can't always go with the company. I didn't go with them to China. I've gone to Paris, I've gone to New York, and I've gone to London with mm -hmm. them, and it's really fun. And it's really fun to see the audience love them. I mean, it makes us very proud to be San Franciscans, don't you think? I mean, European audiences or foreign audiences just go wild when, they, when San Francisco Ballet performs. There's a story that I think is now in the San Francisco Ballet history paragraphs that when they performed in London um, at, I think it was Sadler's Wells, they had the second highest box office take that they'd ever had. Um, the, the second, or the the day after San Francisco Ballet opened, the word of mouth was so sensational that. Uh, so yeah, I was going to say, how does the rest of the world look at San Francisco when you've? Pretty well, much I can tell you, the French yeah. stamp their feet. That's pretty great. Um, and I, the first time I I saw the ba San Francisco Ballet in Paris, it was at the Garnier, and it was in the summer, and it was so hot. It was probably you know 99 degrees, sweltering. And they passed out San Francisco Ballet fans. And so there we were, you know, all of us in the, in the Garnier, fanning away. And the French audience, which is often quite restrained, absolutely went wild. And they went wild particularly to see Muriel Maffre. Now, this is a wonderful, I mean, I'm sure you know this, but M Muriel Maffre was very, or is very tall. And she studied at the Paris Opera Ballet, and she was told, no way will she, would she ever be a dancer. She was too tall. Well, we have to say thank you to Paris Opera Ballet for telling her that, because we got her, and I'm sure you all remember her. I mean, she was just one of my absolute favorite uh, dancers. I remember her at Swan Lake. I remember her in the middle, somewhat elevated, mm -hmm. where I think that, that was actually perfect for her. I mean, I've never seen a leg so long. Mm -hmm. So yes, the audiences, absolutely, foreign audiences love San Francisco because of that freshness that there's something just very youthful and dynamic about our company. I want to <clears throat> look down the season ahead for just a minute or two. Um, we've talked about the Swan Lake, which still has several more performances this week. Um, the Little Mermaid, what do you know about Little Mermaid? What can you tell oh, us, titillate well, us about Little Mermaid? I haven't snuck into rehearsal, but I have seen some of the, the costumes. And try to imagine dancing in a costume that basically imitates somewhat fish fin, you know, that you don't have legs. Imagine the challenge of dancing before you have legs. Um, and what I do know is it's a very emotional, very dramatic very beautiful and very sad story. It's really about Hans Christian Andersen, kind of unrequited love, I think. And I think we should have probably, if we thought about it, made it call, had it called The Mermaid, so we don't think Disney, because it's not Disney. But all the dancers have talked about having to learn extraordinarily different kinds of movement, fish-like movement, you know, flexibility, um, and just, and the, the uh, I think, innovations in fabrics, I think all of it is going to be really dynamic and very, very unusual. I understand lighting is... Oh, under, to make it look underwater? Yeah, yeah I mean, I, I can't even quite imagine. Seeing the uh, costumes hanging on the rack doesn't quite 
transform it into what it's going to be like. So I'm hoping to sneak into rehearsals. And there have been a couple of studio photos that made it into the program book, so you'll be able to just get a hint. Um, I think it's, um, Helgi says he saw it a couple of years ago in Europe and just knew he needed to have it. And fortunately, he has a long relationship with John Neumeyer, mm -hmm. and was John Neumeyer was very anxious to have his work seen. The so first relationship with Neumeyer actually was during the 75th anniversary, and Neumeyer, um, I'm going to forget the name of the Yonder, piece, Yonderling, Yonderling was Neum the first Neumeyer piece to come into the company, and it came in for the student showcase. Um, through both Helgi and Lola, and it was fantastic. Couldn't have been more different. Couldn't have been more different, exactly. This is a very modern um, orchestral score, and that was Songs of Stephen Foster. Yeah. yeah. What could be more different? Um, but it was a lovely piece. Wonderful. Oh, wonderful. Just really beautiful. And again, so youthful, wonderful mm -hmm. for the, the students to perform. And the other um, revivals and world premieres we're going to see, I'm intrigued by what I'm hearing about the Zanella piece. That I know um, nothing about. I, I, I'm in the dark. I have to, I was, that was mm -hmm. the first mm -hmm. I heard of it, so mm -hmm. I can't wait. Um, and then, of course, Yuri Posakov continues his relationship as a resident choreographer. Say a couple words about how do you feel about having a resident choreographer? Helgi is a resident choreographer. Well, absolutely. Well, First and foremost, I miss Yuri on stage. He was, I mean, one of my absolute favorite dancers. Um, and he's such a fascinating character, personality. I mean, he's so dynamic and very Russian and very complex. And I think um, his work reflects the quirkiness of his personality. My personal favorite of his is Mag Magritte Mania, maybe because I'm the art historian and I love Magritte. But there was something so intellectually fun and irreverent about that ballet. Um, his something in the lilacs, diving. diving in the lilacs, very romantic. So I am really looking forward to uh, Yuri thinking classical, and I can't imagine what Yuri thinking classical will be, but with his extraordinary Russian training, his extraordinary talent as a classical dancer, I can't wait to see what he'll do with that. And then the long relationship that we now have with Christopher Wheeldon, Christopher Wheeldon is a force to be reckoned with in the ballet world, in the dance world, the theater world. Uh, we are very lucky that it's oh. not exactly a resident choreographer, but he's certainly... A very good friend, yes. A good I friend. Mean, we are. I mean, Chris, Chris is one of my favorites. I love him as a person. He's adorable. He's charming and really hip. What can I say? I mean, this is a young man. I met him first when my daughter was um, studying at School of American Ballet in New York, and I attended the SAB showcase and was seated next to this 24, 25-year-old charming Brit. And I'm chatting away, and lo and behold, hit one of his works was on their student showcase, and he was on the upward projectile of being really what most people would say is one of the hottest, most creative, most dynamic choreographers today. 
And who would have known? I didn't know. I mean, I just knew he was incredibly charming. What I think is amazing about Chris is his ability to choreograph for couples and his innovation in movement and his ability to kind of wear his emotions on the body, on, on his sleeve, as it were. Um, and he is absolutely committed to bringing in younger audience, making ballet speak a more modern language that will carry this art form forward, bringing in the young, involving the young. And I can't imagine anybody better suited to do that than Chris. And if you think about the works in in our repertoire, Continuum, Rush, what was the one he did last year? wasn't Rush. Golden, within the golden golden hour. hour, All of that is so much about emotion and movement, and I think speaks a very universal language to all ages. When I'm teaching about um, Balanchine and why Balanchine was um, carried the art form forward, Balanchine came on the scene when there had been a resistance to the tradition and a resistance to the old Russian um, Mariinsky, Petipa classicism. And so Fokin and Diaghilev Ballet Rus came in and took the shoes off and turned the legs in. And um, some of the productions have almost no dancing in them. They're very theatrically wonderful. And then Balanchine came along and he said, I need to go back to point shoes. I need to go back to the classical school. But does it look like Petipa? No. He did all kinds of wonderful things with the classical technique, taking it to the next step. And I watch Christopher Wielden's things, and I think he's doing the same thing. He's taking, 100 years later, the influences of modern dance, the influences of um, popular dance, and his dancers still have to be solidly grounded in classical technique. So it's kind of a, I, I just see a real parallel well, with Balanchine. As Balanchi. we're talking, what I, I'm, the art historian in me was going along with um, Diaghilev and Fokin and Picasso and Brock and Balanchine coming out of that and returning somewhat to the classics, but think, I'm thinking abstraction, I'm thinking Mondrian, I'm thinking what, when I think of Balanchine, I don't think emotion, I think line and form and geometry and extraordinary musicality. And I think with Chris, we're getting the training, the line, the form, but we're getting really emotion and passion. And I think he... I'm going to have to think about contemporary art, whether there is a connection between what Chris is doing and contemporary art movements. But there's absolutely a a refinement but a rawness as well, an accessibility of his movement that I think is very here and now. And again, his new world premiere for this season for us is next program two, which... um, I think it opens on February 3rd or 2nd or something like that. It's that week. And um, it's called Ghosts, and he's using a commission score by a popular musician. Um, it just sounds fascinating. It doesn't have a storyline. There's not a character, but there's very definitely emotion. And he says as soon as you say ghosts, you automatically have something going on 
in your mind, and that will inform what you see. Yeah, I haven't so seen I that wait. in rehearsal either. Can't wait. I can't wait. <laughs> um, and Chris is, embraces technology. I mean, I saw one of his ballets in London where he used um, computer graphics, video, and dancers, physical. There were four dancers, and they were dancing with images of themselves, and it was mind-bogglingly beautiful. So he is also embracing technology, which seems to be the only way to go at this point in our, in our time. Uh, we've saved only about five minutes, but if any of you have questions that you would like to ask, this would be a good time to do that. So I saw a hand go up right there. Yeah. It's a dream model. Can it's also repeat, true of the national... Oh, repeat, repeat the, the question? question a little bit, summarize it. The question it. was about um, in Russia and in Paris and in Canada, in Toronto, the model for the school is really a boarding school. You get the, ch the children... I think this is the Royal Ballet, too. You get the children very young, and you house them. You educate them academically. You educate them in dance. They are basically yours um, for the duration of their training. And that would be a dream. It's financial. These are state-funded schools, and that's what we're not. Um, finally, in the last, I think, three years, we have a building on Jackson Street which houses the trainees and some of the other dances, dancers, um, students. And that was a huge step for us to have um, a residence for, for the dancers. Um, as far as, we just don't, we don't have the facilities and we just can't in, increase our budget anymore. Also, the, the budget of the ballet school is part of the ballet association. So the ballet school and the ballet company are under one leadership, Helgi, and one administration. And in th there's, much, there's a much greater division, I think, between the Royal Ballet School and the Royal Company and the Canadian Ballet School and the Canadian Company and the Paris Opera, I think, as well, that there, there are different directors, there's different governance, and thus also different funding. But it would be Helgi's dream to have that kind of um, school, but I just don't think it's feasible, at least in my lifetime. <laughs> Good question. Yes. Absolutely. Repeat the question. Oh, um, I was asked whether I was, uh, went to Chris Wielden's Morphosis performance at Yerba Buena. Yes, indeed. What did I think? I loved it. I particularly liked his new work set to Stravinsky. I also noticed he's using Ratmansky. I loved Ratmansky's Bolero. And Edward Leong is a dancer that I think danced with Chris in New York City Ballet, and I thought his pas de deux was beautiful. Um, now, Chris, don't shoot me. I liked Continuum better when we danced it than his dancers danced it. Okay? Um, Ligeti isn't my favorite music, so I love the movement of Continuum, but 
there was something not there that I remembered being there when, when our dancers were performing it. That's a really good question. Do you, I mean, I haven't, I didn't see Chris after um, the performance, so, and I'm not sure I would have been quite forward enough to ask him that, but it did look very, very different. Um, I don't know if you, I mean, I, I in, in fact, with, with my friends at the performance, we all commented that it looked different. Now, you're probably more articulate and have a better, better memory than I do that I couldn't put my finger on what was different, but it certainly felt like, uh, like a different ballet. Now, is that, well, I'll give you one example of different, how something looked different. Um, when I saw ABT do uh, the Macmillan Romeo and Juliet in New York, I sat, and this is, again, one of my favorite um, pieces of music and favorite ballets, um, I was almost bored. I thought, how is this possible? You can't be bored listening to Prokofiev and watching Romeo and Juliet. So then when I was in London, I went to see the Royal Ballet do the Macmillan Romeo and Juliet because I had to figure out, I said, is this possible? Is it, do I not like Macmillan's version? And absolutely I loved Macmillan, Macmillan's version. The Royal Ballet did it exquisitely. There was nothing about the ABT production performance that looked poorly done, but there was no soul. And you could, I couldn't define that as I watched it because the dancing was exquisite, but there was something utterly missing. Now, does that explain why Continuum may have looked so different? I don't know. I don't think he would change the choreography. I mean, it's his choreography, but it did look different. We're probably at the point where we need to cut it off because many of these folks are going to the performance. Lucky you. <laughs> I want to thank you, Sunny, so much. This has been absolutely fascinating. My pleasure. Enjoy the performance this evening. See you in a couple of weeks. She was one of my favorite students. So I hope you'll do it again sometime. Anytime.